just after the service last week, I, um, I sat down and I was pretty exhausted and I turned on uh, the television and there was David Walliams uh, swimming down the Thames, 140 miles, I think he did, in about six days. If you haven't watched it, it's fantastic. It's such a great um, program, it's such a, an amazing feat that he did. On the second day, I, I don't know if you've seen it, he got Thames Tummy, uh, which I don't know if is a new title, uh, a new thing, but... Uh, you can guess what was happening, and, uh, but he carried on, and he raised just over £2 million for sports relief. Uh, a wonderful endeavour. Like yesterday, um, after lunch, just before we went out to the park, we too did that as a family, and um, myself and the boys, we, we sat down and we began to watch uh, that comedian, John Bishop. I don't know if you've seen him and what he did um, for uh, sports relief again. He cycled on the first day from Paris to Calais, 18 hours in the saddle. He then got one hour of sleep, um, and then he got into a boat with Freddie Flintoff, of all people, and a few others, and rowed across the channel the following day. He had a reasonable night's sleep then, and then he ran a marathon the following day, had a night's sleep, and ran another marathon, and had a night's sleep, and then finally ran another marathon, three marathons in three days, finally ending up in Trafalgar Square. In this so-called, as he described, week of hell, he raised over three million pounds. And these guys have made the headlines, haven't they, over the last few weeks? And they've done great things. These are amazing acts of kindness, uh, with great sacrifice too. I don't know if you've seen it, David Williams. In a result of the six days swimming front crawl, he actually has needed an operation in the top of his spine up here. Uh, John Bishop could hardly walk on the last day that he was meant to be running. Never mind running. His shins were absolutely shattered, quite literally. And he still has terrible pain after what he's done. It is moving, isn't it? To see such endeavour. And I was certainly struggling yesterday to stop myself from blabbing in front of the boys. But why do these people get such a following? Why was it that when David Williams was swimming down the, uh, the Thames that he had people just lining the river, you know, cheering him on as he laboured stroke by stroke? I think just reflecting on it for a while, just, I think it's because they're extraordinary. Extraordinary in the context in which they live. Because such acts of kindness, they're not the norm, are they? Now, I'm not naive to think that these people are doing all these kind of challenges in, in a completely selfless manner. But still what each of them have, has achieved and raised for charity and for all those causes that they're going towards, that's fantastic, isn't it? We should applaud that. These are extraordinary people giving themselves uh, in a way that makes them, well, stand out, doesn't it, from all the people in the crowd. They are distinctive and therefore they're very attractive as you look at them. Uh, and they remind people, onlookers, of another way of not thinking so much of self, but of putting someone else first for a moment. And their motivation? Well, I guess you've seen the clips, haven't you, on Sports Relief and all those other kind of programmes. The motivation is there as they, they kind of pan around a, a kind of a, a landscape in Sierra Leone or somewhere like that with utter deprivation. It's what keeps these guys going step by step and stroke by stroke. They believe in something and it's, and it's so profoundly moved them 
that they're willing to put themselves through utter agony in order to raise money for these children that they've met and to change the circumstances of their squalid uh, lifestyle, to do everything they can. Their sympathy for those causes is matched by supreme endeavour and their belief in that situation is aligned with a behaviour that responds to it. Uh, On this uh, issue, particularly, they're ready to do what they can for the sake of that child that they've met. And it's this kind of response uh, response in life to what we believe and what we know to be true that makes this letter of Titus that we've been looking at so practical, so challenging in so many different ways, Uh, both for the Christians in Crete, to which it was written, but also for us today. This whole letter of Titus has been kind of flip-flopping between those two elements of life, what we believe and how we respond to that belief by the way that we live. Uh, It's belief and behaviour. It's this inseparable union between the two. Um, Bible speak and what's been mentioned here in Titus, it's a balance between duty and doctrine. Chapter 1, the balance was spelt out in the realm of the church. Do you remember that? Chapter 2 moved on to the kind of the realm, the context of the home. And here in chapter 3, there's a development from that. It's the same thing, but now the context is the wider world, the communities in which we live, the places that we work. There's this movement from the personal in chapter 1, moving out into the realms of of now the wider community when we get to chapter 3. But in each realm we're challenged, challenged to live a life that reflects the work of God, that is motivated by the work of God. But I hope you've noted throughout Titus, this is a complete life. I doubt that John Bishop and and David Williams have transformed their whole lives for the sake of the child they met in Sierra Leone or wherever it was. Oh, they might have trained for a few weeks, and I guess they did. John Williams got up you know, really early in the morning for a number of weeks in order to train for that feat, but they might have taken a week off to finish the challenge. But I wonder if there's any obvious transformation of their life in the long term. I mean, I guess in their next tour, which will probably be quite successful because they're big figures now. Will they give a proportion of all that their profits are of that tour to help that cause? I don't want to make any assertions there. But when a Christian is called by God through his word, the the change is not momentary or or superficial. It, It is eternal and it is entire. That is why Titus practically deals with all the areas of life, whether it's the home, the the church, uh, the wider community, the places that we work. Nothing is left out at all. Why? Well, do you remember? Just have a look back. Chapter 2, verse 14. It speaks of Christ and what he has done for you and for me. Jesus Christ, at the end of verse 13, uh, he, he is the one who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. You see, our motivation 
is not temporary. Because we can always look back to that redeeming, gracious work of God that brings salvation that we saw last week. We can always see that Christ died on the cross, taking the punishment that our sin deserves, making us his very own, as we've just sung. And we can always look forward as well as we wait in this life and know and feel every day that blessed hope, do you remember that of chapter 2 verse 13? That blessed hope that one day Christ will gloriously appear and take his children home. You see, our our stimulus toward this radical and distinctive life that Titus calls us to is not partial, is not superficial, for we have an eternal God who has infinitely loved us in Christ and who will save us for an eternal glory. Is that good motivation? Of course it is. But it's more than that. It's more than motivation because it's also transformation. We have become, chapter 2 verse 14, God's treasured possession essentially, purified for himself. We are his children if we've trusted in Christ. And we just need to live like that. That we are his possession. That we are one of his secure, safe children. So in response to all that God has done, we're called to live in this world as we wait in this present age. In a way that pleases God and is for our good. And for our pleasure. In chapter 3, the behaviour and appropriate conduct of a Christian Yeah, it's mapped out again. We'll see that today. But now the arena is the place of work. It's the community around us in which we live. And we see that in verse 1 and 2. But as ever, Titus provides how we should live, the behaviour that we should kind of conduct ourselves in before moving to that inseparable, motivational, um, kind of defining doctrine which came, and I got uh, Linda to read it, because it is one of the most beautiful sentences that's ever been penned in verses 4 to 8. It's one sentence, 84 Greek words, written down in about 100 English words. It is awesome. We'll come to that just after Easter. But for now, let's see what behaviour and attitude Paul commends to the Christian as we work and live in this world. Let's remind ourselves of verse 1 and 2 again. Just follow with me if you can. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. As I put on the outlines there, first little introductory points, it just says, remind the people. It is fascinating, isn't it, that Paul considers it uh, important and necessary for Titus to remind the people. And the assumption, obviously, is that, I think it's back one, but never mind. Um, The assumption is that we easily forget who we are and how we ought to live as a result of who we are. Here's a good example, I think. I don't know if you remember back in, um, well, it's a few years ago now, Prince Harry stumbling out of a a nightclub dressed as Hitler in the middle of Mayfair, clearly having had a few too many. I guess his 
um, people around him probably should have said, remind Prince Harry who he is and subsequent conduct. When I was a teacher, when we were coaching rugby, we used to drill the boys um, pretty severely and say, you know, um, the fact is you may have finished the game. You may have won the game. And, you know, you might be very, very delighted and you want to go out and celebrate and have a few drinks and so on. You may even have taken off your uniforms at this stage. But you're still a pupil of the school. Uh, You still represent the school. You're still an ambassador for the school. You're identified with this school. Therefore, how you live matters. And they need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we do need to be reminded of who we are and how we ought to live correspondingly, don't we? We need to be reminded by others and, of course, by ourselves as well, so that we don't undermine who we are by the way that we live. That's the case of all sorts of ways. You know, I'm a dad. I don't necessarily do the kind of skiing that I used to when I wasn't a dad now. I need to be a bit more responsible. Uh, you know, I, perhaps you work for a firm, and therefore there's a, there's a sense of duty and, and loyalty that you need toward that firm. You know, if you only have eyes for one person, then you need to fix your eyes on that one person. Most importantly, I guess, as Christians, if we are Christians here tonight, you are a sinner saved by the grace of God. And you need to be reminded, as I do, to live correspondingly to that truth. Don't forget who you are. Because, as we looked at in chapter 2.14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. To purify for himself a people that are his very own. You're one of Jesus' children. You're brother of Christ. One of God's children. So remind the people, well, to do what? To be subject to rulers and to authorities. To be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. That is a lovely little phrase there. Uh, To be ready to do whatever is good. And it's the same phrase that was used back in chapter 2, verse 14, eager to do what is good. And it will end this section as well in chapter 3, verse 8. It's the same words in the Greek there. And it essentially means to not show any kind of reluctance. The writer Paul seems to have it as kind of the hallmark of the life of a Christian, living in this world in response to what Christ has done for us. And it stands in the middle of these two verses at the opening part of of chapter 3 as a phrase which kind of defines the character of a Christian and the corresponding actions and attitudes that surround it in the centre of those couple of verses. It's a summary verse, if you like, which joins the two verses together. See, a Christian should be one who has an eager appetite for doing good that is known to all both in the workplace, as we'll see in verse 1, but also in the wider community, as we'll see in verse 2. And we're going to look at each of those in their context, because in the midst of a world that generally seeks to serve itself, the Christian should be the one who is distinctly attractive, as the one eager to do good, ready to do whatever is good, not for oneself, but very much an outward-looking good to all. 
The Christian is someone secure in Christ with that blessed hope of the glory to come. We saw that last chapter. And it should be someone whose eagerness to do good is obvious to everyone around us. Firstly, we see in the workplace. We see that. Have a look at those first little um, first verse there. To be subject to rulers and authorities, those over us. To be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. I, I put the workplace, but it, it really is any place where there is authority over us. Could be the state, the workplace. But I guess many of us are in the workplace. It's a helpful uh, kind of illustration for us to work through. A bit of context, a bit of historical background. There was a verb known in the local kind of languages, and it was to cretize. And it basically meant to lie, to cheat. Because that's how they were known, the people of Crete. They were liars, cheats. And we saw that back in chapter 1, didn't we? Uh, you know, lazy, uh, evil brutes, I think the term was used there. And, and in contrast, you see here, Paul, through Titus, is saying to the Christians in Crete that they're not to be like that. That's the shocking reputation of the people living in Crete. Christians, you're to be subject to your rulers. Not lying, not cheating. And we see it, so subject to your rulers. Now, Paul actually goes further than that in his letter to Timothy, in chapter 2 of Timothy. And he says that Christians, you ought to pray for your rulers, your employers. Go a step further. Paul isn't here saying... Be subject to your rulers uh, and saying, you know, have an unconditional allegiance to your bosses at work or, or to the state. Because that would be worship. That would even be inappropriate in a, in a church setting. So, for example, if we're a bishop were to ask me, a bishop sort of comes over me they, in authority terms. If a bishop were to ask me to teach or condone something that was not in God's word then I would have to disobey them at that point. Likewise, if the government gets through Parliament its new redefinition of marriage, and a same-sex couple came to me and asked me to marry them, I would have to say no. Because it is contrary to God's word, and I would have to face the jail sentence for that decision. Um, You must hear me right on this. It is not that I wouldn't love and support and befriend that couple in any way that I possibly could. As I do now with uh, my friends who are gay. But God is explicit. And he has defined marriage in his word, the Bible. And therefore I am ultimately subject to his rule. And secondarily to that delegated authority of government or of human authority over me. Maybe a boss at work for you. Now, if you want to learn more about this, turn to Romans 13. It's very helpful on the, on the issue. Look at that further. Come and ask questions. That would be great. But practically, let's just think. If your boss asks you to do something that is contrary to God's word, for example, you know, you've got a presentation, you've got a deal going down. I don't know what kind of jobs you do, but you know, whatever it is, you've got something to do, and they just say, oh, yeah, we know, we've not done that. Just lie about it. Well, what do you do? Well, at that point, you should not be subject to their rule, but subject, subject yourself to the rule of God through his word. And he calls you to tell the truth. Positively, being subject to your boss does mean an unbridled loyalty, doesn't it? 
where God permits. And sadly in our culture, authority is often challenged and needlessly questioned, isn't it? Driven by performance and results. If the boss doesn't cut it, the boss is cut, isn't he? He got out of there. Get in. There's no sense of loyalty anymore. No sense of care. Now obviously if someone is you know, negligent over a period of time and is not willing to learn, then disciplinary measures should be taken. That's right and appropriate. But if you find yourself in a situation you're asked about your boss, do you look to be positive? Do you defend their good attributes rather than cut them down? It's, it's very easy, isn't it? To join in the banter and the criticism, maybe in drinks after work, especially if the person being critiqued holds a position that if gone, you might be promoted to. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. So don't undermine your boss. Go to work tomorrow. Listen to them. And yeah, be the best employee of the month. If that involves a cup, great. If it involves a golden star like a McDonald's on your lapel, great. Go for it. Be the best employee of the month. Why? Well, because someone has subjected themselves to the rule and the authority of their father, even to the point of death, and they did it for you. And where you deserved all the criticism that God could lay upon you to the nth degree, instead God backed you in the pub after work by giving you his son to die on a cross for your sin. Commend Christ's work by how you work under your bosses. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. And he also mentions there obedience, doesn't he? So to be obedient. Now, of course, that's clearly modelled in Christ. He was obedient even unto death. But it's clearly lacking in the world around us. Because often in our culture, don't you find that the action of obedience is separated from the attitude of obedience? See, we're not called to be reluctantly obedient here. Like the kind of brooding teenager who's been told to get home by a certain time. Otherwise, they're grounded for a month. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do it. It's not that. Even if our boss, even if our government seems weak and makes bad decisions, if they don't go against God's word, then we are to be joyfully Obedient. Here's a good test for me. It may not be a good test for you, but hear my weakness here. When driving along a motorway, and uh, do I drive at 70 miles an hour, gritting my teeth, going, ooh, this is so slow. Look at that Porsche going night, and so on. Grumpily obedience to the law. Or do I keep at 70 miles and delight in the fact that I live in a society where I've been given good government with good law in order to protect me and protect the other drivers on that motorway? Be obedient to all rulers and authorities over us in action and in attitude. And here comes that summary phrase, ready to do whatever is good. You see, this eagerness to do good in our workplaces 
And as the context expands now to the community around us in verse 2, this eagerness to do good everywhere expands our, and also limits our responsibility. That is, it expands our responsibility as we actually look for the opportunities to do good. Do you do that in your workplace? Actually look for chances to do good amongst your work colleagues? But it also limits our responsibility. Because the only thing that we ought to be eager for is good. Things that are good. So I ask you, what are you most eager for in life? And what part of your life do you show the least reluctance in? Is that a good thing? That is, is it something that will promote Christ in you and to you? Christians, in response to all the goodness and eagerness that God has poured out onto us through Christ to bring us into an eternal relationship with him, be ready to do whatever is good. That is... Whatever God delights in, whatever promotes Christ in and through you. Verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. So practically, firstly, sort of in the workplace, in the state in which we live. But now, I suppose to summarise, I might put just say, listen, obey, show willing. But it isn't just our attitude and actions in the workplace that Paul challenges. We move on now to verse 2. Look at it. Paul now commends a way to us to relate to everybody around us. Whether it's that person at work that annoys you. Picture them in your mind right now. Think good things about them and for them. Maybe it's the noisy neighbour. Maybe it's the dustbin man who just... Wakes you up every Wednesday morning at 6.30 or whatever it is. At the moment, my personal favourite are estate agents. They never tell the truth, it seems to me. They drive me up the wall. But what does Paul say? How should the Christian live? Verse 2. Slander no one. To be peaceable, considerate and to show true humility toward all men. So now we look to the wider realm of the world around us in verse 2. And you notice there are, there are two negatives to begin with. Uh, not obvious in our translation. A slander no one. And then the, uh, the peaceable word is actually a negative in the original. You might say avoid quarrels. Avoid arguments. Fighting. Can you think where you find that most challenging? And with whom? Paul then positively commends Christians to be both we see considerate and also to show true humility. And these four words, they're very hard, aren't they, to live out these days? Because I guess in, in many of your situations at work and in just living in the culture around us, uh, these characteristics that Paul commends here, they're often understood, aren't they, as, as signs of weakness. I mean, what do you learn on your management training courses? Some of you even teach on those things. You know, do you train to be peaceable? Do you train to be considerate? 
To show humility when you interview or when you write your CV? Do you teach that? Notice that there are no exceptions to be made for all of these social attitudes. Slander what? No one. Show true humility toward all men. Even the person that empties your bin at work. So firstly, warning against two negatives. Slander no one, avoid arguments. Simply one is regarding speech and one is regarding action. We do not speak against or do we do not fight against anyone. In another translation, it just says offensive argumentative. You get the idea. Again, this is secondary to obeying God's word. It is never right to slander or to speak offensively. And likewise, it's never right to pick a fight or start an argument unnecessarily. But we must stand up for what we believe. We must not seek a fight. But if someone is seeking for us to stop being faithful to God, well then we have cause to rightly and graciously stand firm. Civil disobedience, you see, is acceptable. Slightly frightened saying that in front of a policeman looking at me here, but it is acceptable. It may cause arguments, but note the distinction in that who initiates the quarrel is quite important. I don't, I, you don't have to turn back to it, but if you take a note, Acts chapter 4 is really helpful in this, with John and Peter in front of the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, if you want to take a note of that. Basically, the situation is Peter and John are stood in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, Jewish party at the time, and they're, they're asked to stop teaching um, the name of God, uh, to proclaim the name of God in that place. The Sanhedrin, you see, initiated the quarrel. They initiated the, the fight, if you like, the arguments. And Peter and John, at that point, stand firm graciously and they reply in disobedience and they say in verse 20 we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard they've been commanded by Jesus given the authority to preach the gospel and they say we cannot help speaking they're listening to God first because that's their ultimate authority and they obey him they don't slander the Sanhedrin They don't make up lies about them unnecessarily undermining, but they will not disobey God, even if it means a fight. Slander no one. Avoid arguments. That is, be peaceable in our translation. But you have to say, as a general caveat, stand firm in Christ. He's your ultimate authority. Secondly, we'll see, just lastly, be considerate, show humility. Be considerate. Show humility. We don't actually have any English words that directly translate these two Greek words here. Um, But the first means something like, and I've I've chucked a couple of words your way, put them in a melting pot and you get the word. It's something like gentleness, graciousness, and and, and socially coming together, it's kind of a a conciliatory um, action. I guess that is uh, is most difficult in in situations where To be considerate in the way that's being described here 
is not beneficial to you. <coughs> Say you're in a meeting this week sometime. And various parties within that meeting, they, they begin an argument. And you can see that the argument is heading in, tra- in the trajectory that you want it to go. It's going to meet the end that you want to find. Do you leave the argument happening? Happy that they'll just carry on, biting at each other? Uh, You see, the outcome is less important than the methodology, according to Paul. Be considerate, he says. Be conciliatory. Try to help people to talk to one another, rather than to shout at one another. Try to help people to commend each other, rather than rip each other apart. Will it help your career? I doubt it. But will it commend Christ to your colleagues and the community in which you live? Yes. The second Greek word translated here, again, let me chuck a few words to you. You get the idea in the end. Um, translated here, show true humility, means something like, well, it's humility, it's courtesy, it's meekness. Bring those together. Try this one with your cleaner at work. I always use that, the person who empties your bin. I I just think it's a nice little, you know, someone does that, I guess, in your office place, uh, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Try to see the person that is socioeconomically the lowest person that you're going to meet this week and try to offer them true humility. Speak to them in that way. Let me finish. Considerate and humble. I mean, I just want to say, why bother? Well, Christ was both, wasn't he? He was everything good to all men. And there ought to be no limits to our humble courtesy and no limits to the people that we show that to. Could you imagine if Jesus had limits? Just for a moment. Can you imagine if Jesus said, I have come so that the very humble might have life. What if Jesus said, repent and believe all you who are very considerate, not those who are medium considerate or not very considerate. No, Jesus came subject to his Father's will, obedient to death, doing the ultimate good that we do not deserve, always considerate, perfect in humility, no limits to his work, No limits to the beneficiaries of his work. So my friends, remind the people, remind each other, that Jesus did that for your salvation. And remind each other that we need to respond appropriately. Let's pray.